Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. In episode 107, I'm going to be talking about essentials, errors, and ambiguities in the early Christian writings. But before we get into that episode, I just want to give you an update on how things are going with the uh, EP. Thank you all so much for your generous support and prayers uh, with the GoFundMe fundraiser. We raised, uh, by God's grace uh, and y'all's generosity, all the money that was needed within basically a day, a day and a half. And that's just incredible. Uh, Also, I've got artwork almost completely done and one song completely mixed and mastered. And I'm going to give you a, a small sample of that first song right now. It's called Strive. All right, y'all. Well, again, that is Strive off the upcoming Genesis EP. Sure to be here in early fall or late summer. So please be in prayers for that. I am blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK and Kurt, who are putting out great content every week. Go check out our Omega Frequency YouTube channels, Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live. If you're not a subscriber, be sure to hit subscribe and ring that bell so you get notified every time a new video comes out. And lastly, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. Definitely go check those guys out there. There's so many amazing resources there at Scroll Publishing. All right, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into episode 107. (music) 
My wife, Stephanie, recently interviewed one of my former pastors named Clay Bowers. And if you haven't heard that interview, you should go check it out on her podcast, The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker. And one of the things that Clay taught me is that not every issue is a mountain or a hill worth dying for. There are some things that you are you should die for, and those are the major things, the major things in Christianity. And uh, the minor things, we don't need to turn into major things. And so today, what I want to do, I want to look at some of those major issues, the essentials from the early Christian writings. And I also want to look at some errors because there were some errors in the early Christian writings. And sometimes people use those to discount the other things that the early Christians said. And finally, we're going to look at some ambiguities, some some gray areas, if you will, areas where the early Christians... Uh, took a stand, but maybe they're not biblically supported. So let's get into this right now. For the essentials, I want to start with uh, writings from a a Christian apologist named Aristides, and this is around 120 or so uh, AD, early second century. And he's writing an apology to the Roman Empire. This is what he writes. The Christians then trace the beginning of their religion from Jesus the Messiah and he is named the Son of God Most High. All right, so Messiah is Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. All right, and here's some more essentials. And it is said that God came down from heaven and from a Hebrew virgin assumed and clothed himself with flesh, and the Son of God lived in a daughter of man. So just pausing there again, all right, like God himself came in the flesh, all right? God, 100% human, born of a virgin, a Hebrew virgin, just like Isaiah 7.14 said. All right. And he continues, this is taught in the gospel, as it is called, which a short time was preached among them. Speaking of the, uh, the Hebrew people. And you also, if you will read therein, may perceive the power which belongs to it. The gospel is the power of God, as Paul talks about in Romans. This Jesus then was born of the race of the Hebrews, and he had 12 disciples in order that the purpose of his incarnation might in time be accomplished. But he himself was pierced by the Jews, and he died and was buried. And they say that after three days, he ascended, he he rose and then ascended to heaven. So you've got like basic gospel message there as well, right? Uh, Not only that he was incarnate, God himself incarnate, born of a virgin, but he was crucified. He died, was buried after three days, rose again, and then ascended to heaven at the right hand of God, right? Thereupon, these 12 disciples went forth throughout the known parts of the world and kept showing his greatness with all modesty and uprightness. So they lived out this gospel message with righteous living. And hence also those of the present day who believe that preaching are called Christians. There's some essentials for you. Let's go go to uh, Irenaeus around 180 with some more essentials. You you will hear like some creedal type statements as well uh, from Irenaeus here. And he's going to talk about the universal church. All right. So the the body of believers throughout the world all believe these things. The church 
though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. Kind of like what Jude would say, the faith once delivered, once for all delivered into the saints. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them. And in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God, and the advents, and the birth from a virgin, and the passion, that's like the crucifixion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and his future manifestation, he's coming again, from heaven in the glory of the Father to gather all things in one and to raise up anew all flesh of the human, whole human race in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess to him, and that he should execute just judgment towards all, that he may send spiritual wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates together with ungodly and unrighteous and wicked and profane among men into the everlasting fire." but may, in the exercise of his grace, confer immortality on the righteous and holy and those who have kept his commandments and have persevered in his love, some from the beginning of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance, and may surround them with everlasting glory." All right, so those are some essential, basic, like, creedal-type statements, and and that's one side of the coin of the gospel. It's like a two-sided coin that basically say the same thing. They just have a little bit different imagery on them, you could, you could say. The other side of the coin of the gospel is the way of the gospel, or the way of the kingdom. So, the first side is the way into the kingdom. This is the way of the kingdom. And we read that most clearly in a document called the Didache, or the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And this is a basic, uh, like, early Christian new members class orientation type document that everybody read. And you had to basically believe that this is the way and agree that this is the way that you're going to live. This is following Jesus. This is the way of the kingdom. All right? So here we go. This is just an excerpt from chapter one. The Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations, the two ways and the first commandment. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. The way of life, then, is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And do not do to another what you would not want done to you. And of these sayings, the teaching is this. Bless those who curse you, and pray for your enemies, and fast for those who persecute you 
For what reward is there for loving those who love you? Do not the Gentiles do the same? But love those who hate you, and you will not have an enemy. Abstain from fleshly and worldly lusts. If someone strikes your right cheek, turn to him the other also, and you shall be perfect. If someone impresses you for one mile, go with him too. If someone takes your cloak, give him also your coat. If someone takes from you what is yours, ask it not back, for indeed you are not able. Give to everyone who asks you, and ask it not back, for the Father wills that to all should be given of our own blessings free gifts. Happy is he who gives according to the commandment, for he is guiltless. And that is some hard teaching. And yet it is the way of life. It is the from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what every new Christian in the first century and second century was reading. That's what they were being indoctrinated with, the way of the kingdom. And one of the main, well, the main passage from Matthew 5, the, the most quoted passage from Matthew 5 is to love your enemies. And so it is not a surprise that they taught nonviolence universally. Just want to read y'all a few quotes. Again, from Aristides around 125, 120, they comfort their oppressors and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Here's Justin Martyr around 160. Now we pray for our enemies and try to win those who hate us unjustly so that they too may live in accordance with Christ's wonderful teachings, that they too may enter into the expectation, that they too may receive the same good things that we will receive from God, the ruler of the universe. Here's Athenagoras in 175. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, pray for them that persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's just straight up quoting Jesus. Here's Irenaeus around 180. Jesus commanded his followers not only not to hate men, but also to love their enemies. He commanded not only not to injure their neighbors, nor to do them any evil, but also when they are dealt with wickedly to be long-suffering. And here's Clement of Alexandria, someone we're going to come back to later. Around 195 AD, he writes, He bids us to love our enemies, bless them that curse us, and pray for those who despitefully use us. An enemy must be aided so that he may not continue as an enemy. For by help, good feeling is compacted and enmity is dissolved. All right, those are some basic essentials that were taught everywhere. These are majors. These are hills to die on, basically. Uh, These are the major major essentials of the faith for the early Christians. And there are other universal ones that were taught as well, but these are like the primary uh, teachings. This is the way into the kingdom, and this is the way of the kingdom that was taught by Jesus and the apostles and the early Christians. Now, let's look at some errors 
Justin Martyr is one of the most famous early Christian apologists. He wrote uh, two apologies to the Roman Empire, and then he has an apology that functions like a an apology and also like a polemic uh, in an argument with Trypho the Jew, whether this is a real man or not. He is for sure representative of basic arguments that early Christians got into uh, with the uh, Jewish people who did not believe in Jesus of, of that day. And in this document, Trypho makes many objections to Jesus being the Christ, and one of them He says, Jesus cannot be the Christ because Elijah has not come yet. So he's quoting Malachi, right? Malachi 4, 5. And so he's saying, because Elijah has not come, then I infer that this man, Jesus, is not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. So this is how Justin responds. He says, does not scripture in the book of Zechariah say that Elijah shall come before the great and terrible day of the Lord? Trypho says, certainly. And Justin replies, if therefore scripture compels you to admit the two advents of Christ were predicted to take place, one in which he would appear suffering and dishonored and without comeliness, but the other in which he would come glorious and judge of all, as has been made manifest in many of the four-sided passages, Shall we not suppose that the word of God is proclaimed Elijah that Elijah shall be the precursor of the great and terrible day that is of his second advent? So Justin is making the argument like look Elijah is coming back but if you're looking at the passage in Malachi correctly you understand that this is like Elijah coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord basically when Jesus comes back to annihilate evil and gather his church to himself and the resurrection of the saints, all that kind of stuff, right, at his second advent. And so Justin's making a good argument there. The problem is, is that he said that the passage about Elijah coming before the day of the Lord was in Zechariah when it's actually in Malachi 4. Now, because because Justin screwed up there, uh, should we totally negate the main argument that he's making? Do we not need to listen to him because he messed up a Bible quote? And he cited it wrong? Surely not. Surely we're not doing that stuff because I would venture to say all of us have misquoted scripture at some point, trying to pull a reference um, out of the air and not quite getting it right. Some of us have said just flat out crazy things, not, you know, trying to teach heresy, but uh, just kind of accidents. Like one time I was preaching uh, out of Revelation chapter two and giving some context to the people. I said that, you know, during the reign of Domitian, the emperor Domitian, John was exiled to the, um, to the Galapagos Islands. And um, (laughs) I looked at my wife, Stephanie, and she's just giving me this crazy look, right? I had no idea what I'd said, but I was going to talk later in the message about Darwin and atheism, and I was going to, you know, give some some arguments against it. Uh, And so I kind of had Darwin on the mind there, and it just came out of my mouth, Galapagos Islands instead of the island of Patmos. Well, you know, if if someone was sitting in there uh, in the audience and um, caught that, like, Stephanie, should she just then disregard the rest of the message? Well, maybe, because I wasn't very good at, at speaking back then, and 
you know, I probably haven't gotten much better now, but, uh, you know, you shouldn't discount someone because they make a mistake, right? This is not heresy. This is just, you know, they get stuff wrong. Let me give in another example. This is from uh, Irenaeus, okay? Now, Irenaeus was a spiritual grandson of the Apostle John. So, uh, Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, and Polycarp was discipled by John. And Irenaeus was one of the most well-respected um, Christian writers of the second century. Uh, this guy was also the Bishop of Lyon. Uh, he's just, he wrote so many incredible works. Well, you you write enough or you, you preach enough, eventually you're going to say or write something very clearly wrong. I mean, it's just going to happen. All right, so this is in Against Heresies, book two, chapter 22, and he's writing about the age of Jesus when he was crucified, all right? So first he's going to talk about how old he was when he uh, got disciples, and then he's going to talk about how old he was when he died. It was a little bit lengthy. Uh, it's, it's about two paragraphs, but hang with me, okay? So Irenaeus writes, How could he have had disciples if he did not teach? And how could he have taught unless he had not reached, uh, unless he had reached the age of a master, like of a rabbi? For when he came to be baptized, he had not yet completed his 30th year, but was beginning to be about 30 years of age. And let me scoot forward a little bit. On completing his 30th year, he suffered being in fact still a young man and who had by no means attained the advanced to advanced age. Now, that first stage of early life embraces 30 years and that this extends onward toward the 40, 40th year, everyone will admit. But from the 40th and 50th year, a man begins to decline towards old age. So he's just talking about people. Like we're, we're kind of reaching our peak around 30 and we may continue to 40, but then around 50, we start to decline, right? I think I'm feeling that at 41. Anyway, um, he continues, For when the Lord said to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad, they answered him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? That's from John 8. Now, such language is fittingly applied to one who has already passed the age of 40 without having yet reached his 50th year, yet is not far away from this latter period. But to one who is only 30 years old, it would unquestionably said, be said, you're not yet 40 years old. For those who wish to convict him of falsehood would certainly not extend the number of his years far beyond the age which he saw he had attained. But they mentioned a period near his real age, whether they had truly uh, ascertained this out of the entry in the public register or simply made a conjecture from what they had observed that he was about 40 years old and that he was certainly not one of the 30, not one of only 30 years of age. Okay, well, Irenaeus seems to be making a decent point, only scholarly research has shown that Jesus was 33 years old when he died, based on him being 30 years old at his baptism. So Irenaeus is completely wrong, completely wrong. 
But does that discount what he said about the deity of Christ in his creedal statements? Does that discount what he said about Jesus being born of a virgin? Does that discount that Jesus was crucified, raised from the dead, and then ascended to the right hand of God the Father? That he is the Lord and God? That he is the maker of heaven? Does that discount any of those statements just because he really, really got wrong the age of Jesus? Should we discount the rest of those creedal statements? It's absurd. So we need to make sure that we're not using those kind of like straw man arguments to not have to deal with the hard teachings of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount, which the early Christians all said we all practice. Now, uh, moving on from the errors, we're going to get into uh, a little bit more touchy subject, which is ambiguities. Now, with these ambiguities, these gray areas, these areas of uncertainty, these are areas where some early Christians may like have a hill. They're making this a hill that they're willing to die on. They're saying that this area is a major issue, but the problem is there's no New Testament support for it. So they are either making a mountain out of an area that maybe the Old Testament calls a mountain, but the early, but the New Testament doesn't, or they're making a mountain out of uh, something that's not even in the New Testament or the Old Testament. And the guy that seems to come up more than anyone else in this area is Clement of Alexandria. Now, uh, as I go through this stuff, again, just because he is stepping out in territory where he does not have biblical support doesn't mean we should write off what he says in the areas where all the other early Christians agree with him. No. And where Jesus and the apostles agree with him specifically, you know, no, we, we should not write him off in those areas. But maybe he's going a little bit too far. You be the judge, okay? So here is what Clement writes about beards, okay? Now, he's basing what he's going to say off of Leviticus 19.27 when, he, when uh, God tells Moses, you, know, you shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shall you mar the corners of your beard. All right? So Clement writes, But for one who is a man to comb himself and shave himself with a razor for the sake of fine effect, to arrange his hair at the looking glass, to shave his cheeks, to pluck hairs out of them and smooth them, how womanly! And, in truth, unless you saw them naked, you would suppose them to be women. So Clement is writing about men who care a whole lot about their appearance appearance, and are uh, very into like manscaping and grooming and that kind of stuff. All right, let's do a few more. This then, the mark, the mark of the man, the beard, by which he is seen to be a man is older than Eve and is the token of of the superior nature. In this, God deemed it right that he should excel and uh, dispersed hair over the man's whole body. Well, see, this is a problem for me because I've got, I believe about, I'm about a 16th. A lot of Native Americans 
uh, don't have much body hair. Like I, I barely have any visible hair on my arms or my legs. I shave maybe 25% of my face <laughs> because the majority of my face, I can't grow hair. I don't have any back hair, chest hair, anything like that. And according to Clement, we would be, uh, us, us Native Americans would be womanly, you know? <laughs> All right. The symbol of masculinity is the beard. Let's keep going. It is therefore impious to desecrate the symbol of manhood, hairiness, but the embellishment of smoothing, for I am warned by the word, if it is to attract men, is the act of an effeminate person. If to attract women, it is the act of an adulterer, and both must be driven as far as possible from our society. Okay, so Clement here is, is um, now he's drawing on passages like uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, where no homosexual, uh, no effeminate person will enter the kingdom of heaven. No adulterer will enter the kingdom of heaven. And those are true, but Clement says one of the main ways that you can avoid being an adulterer or an effeminate person or a homosexual is to have a beard. I wonder what he would say if he saw uh, the many men who dress like women and yet still have beards in our society. Hmm. Let's do one more from Clement about beards. He writes, But let the chin have the hair, for an ample beard suffices for men. And if one, too, shave a part of his beard, it must not be made entirely bare, for this is a disgraceful sight. The shaving of the chin to the skin is reprehensible approaching to plucking out the hair and smoothing. For instance, thus the psalmist, delighted with the hair of the beard, says, as the ointment that descends on the beard, the beard of Aaron, having celebrated the beauty of the beard by a repetition, he made the face to shine with the ointment of the Lord. I don't think that the psalmist had beards in mind for being the main point of that psalm. I think it was the brothers dwelling in unity. Maybe we need to, in order to dwell in unity, really focus on the essentials instead of things like being clean-shaven or having a beard, since that is not in the New Testament. It's not addressed in the New Testament at all. Let's go on to uh, music. This is another area where Clement has a, um, a whole lot to say, but a lot of, lot of opinions on music. Though the Old Testament has a whole lot to say about music and making loud music and banging cymbals and all that kind of stuff, the New Testament is not completely silent, but it's almost silent about music. There just is not much uh, said about it. Uh, there are two main passages from Paul's letters, and they're basically uh, they're basically the same verbiage. So I'm just going to read one of them, okay? Because this is all that the New Testament has for us to draw on. Most, I mean, for the most part. 
All right. So Paul writes in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's about it. Now let's see what Clement has to say about music, particularly Christians and music. If people occupy their time with pipes and psalteries and choirs and dances and Egyptian clapping of hands and such disorderly frivolities that they become quite immodest and intractable, they beat on cymbals and drums and make a noise on their instruments of delusion for plainly such a banquet as seems to me is a theater of drunkenness. For the apostle decrees that putting off the works of darkness, we should put on the armor of light, walking honestly as in the day, not spending our time in rioting and drunkenness and chambering and wantonness. That's from Ephesians 5. Didn't say anything about instruments in Ephesians 5, though. Anyway, he continues, Let the pipe be resigned to the shepherds and the flute to the superstitious who are engrossed in idolatry. For, in truth, such instruments are to be banished from the temperate banquet, being more suitable to beasts than men, and the more irrational portion of mankind. He is, uh, he would definitely not be a fan of uh, that song, Strive, that you heard from me earlier. Let's continue. Uh, He writes, For we have heard of stags being charmed by the pipe, like deer, right? Being charmed by the pipe and seduced by music into the toils when hunted by the herdsmen. And when mares are being covered, a tune is played on the flute, a nuptial song, as it were. And every improper sight and sound, so to speak, in a word... Uh, to speak in a word, and every shameful sensation of licentiousness, which, in truth, is privation of sensation, must by all means be excluded, and we must be on our guard against whatever pleasure titillates eye and ear and effeminates. For the various spells of the broken strains and plaintive numbers of the Korean muse corrupt men's morals, drawing to uh, perturbation of mind and licentious and mischievous art of music. All right. Again, he's saying like this stuff is going to lead to adultery and people being effeminate and licentious, uh, licentious behavior. That's what uh, the flute does. So we got to watch out for the flute. Now, you know, that's going back to like pan, of course. Um, But does every flute player, every flautist, um, is that an idolater? I don't know. Maybe. Let's continue. More from Clement on music. Now he's going to be speaking for the Holy Spirit and he's going to quote the Psalms. All right. Now here, this is kind of interesting. uh, The way he spiritualizes um, instruments and basically uses them as allegory, 
Very interesting. The spirit distinguishing from such revelry the divine service sings, praise him with the sound of the trumpet. For the sound of the trumpet, he shall raise the dead. For, for with the sound of the trumpet, he shall raise the dead. Praise him on the psaltery. For the tongue is the psaltery of the Lord. And praise him on the lyre. By the lyre is meant the mouth struck by the spirit, as it were by a, a plectrum. Praise him with the timbrel in the dance. Refers to the church meditating on the resurrection of the dead and in resound in the resounding skin. Praise him on the chords and organ. Our body he calls an organ, and its nerves are the strings by which it has received harmonious tension. And when struck by the spirit, it gives forth human voices. Praise him on the clashing cymbals. He calls the tongue the symbol of the mouth, which resounds with a pulsation of the lips. Therefore, he cried to humanity, let every breath praise the Lord, because he cares for every breathing thing which he has made. For man is truly a, a, a pacific instrument, while other instruments, if you investigate, you will find to be warlike, inflaming to lusts, or kindling up armors, or, uh, or rousing wrath. All right. That was a mouthful. Uh, so yeah, um, God never, in, according to, to Clement, basically God never intended people to actually play the lyre or the flute or, um, or the cymbals. He, he never intended that. He, he was always talking about the human body when he was talking about those instruments. All right. Now, uh, let's go to Tertullian, because he talks about this too. But even Tertullian, who's incredibly strict, is being a little bit more intellectually honest with this than Clement. Tertullian writes, Nay, if he also first strung the chord to give forth melody, I will not deny, when listening to David that this invention has been used with the saints and has ministered to God. All right, so like the harp or whatever. Tertullian's like, look, I can't deny it. Look, David ministered to the Lord with this thing, and I'm not going to lie, Christians have used this to minister to God. All right. So Tertullian may not like it, which you can find in some of his other writings. He doesn't like it. He thinks it's kind of dangerous, but he admits that it can be used to glorify God. Now, uh, Cyprian writes about this too, around 250. And what we find from Cyprian is, is again, like some of the underlying reasons behind the early Christians being, at least in the the late second and third century being kind of weary of, um, of musical instruments. All right. So this is what Cyprian writes. Be sober and watch because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion goes about seeking anyone to devour. They're quoting first Peter five. 
He continues, he goes about every one of us. And even as an enemy besieging those who are shut up in a city, he examines the walls and tries whether there is any part of these walls less firm and less trustworthy by entrance through which he may penetrate to the inside. He presents to the eyes seductive forms and easy pleasures that he may destroy chastity by the sight. He tempts the ears with harmonious music that by the hearing of sweet sounds, he may relax and destroy Christian vigor. All right. So Cyprian's kind of getting into the psychology of Satan and how Satan will look at areas where maybe we're a little bit weak or where our guard isn't up. And he will use areas that that are easier for him to infiltrate. And so Cyprian is basically saying, look, like music just kind of has a way of putting people at ease and causes them to accept things easier that maybe they wouldn't accept if it was just spoken. And so Cyprian is encouraging us basically to be on our guard and to really watch out for that. He's showing, he's basically talking about um, how powerful of a tool music is and how easily it can be used for evil. And I mean, I don't think there's any denying that at all. Music is incredibly powerful. And it, I mean, it's like, think about a chainsaw, right? Chainsaw is an incredibly powerful tool. It can, it can really mess people up. Lawnmower, right? My uncle, his finger got cut off by a lawnmower. This lawnmower went over some barbed wire and um, he reached down. I guess he didn't realize the lawnmower was still running. He reached down to grab the, the barbed wire and pull it out from the lawnmower. And as soon as it kind of got unstuck, uh, that blade turned and just caught the barbed wire and ripped his finger right off. You know, a lawnmower is a powerful tool that can be a blessing or a curse, depending on how it's used. So we really got to treat powerful tools with respect, right? So, I mean, I, I was a little kid. My dad told me when, when the, the first time I mowed the lawn, my dad said, see that little white thing on the side uh, of the engine? That's the muffler. That's the hottest part of the mower. Don't touch that, right? And so what's a, what's a 12 or 13-year-old kid going to do when your dad says, don't touch the muffler? Well, you're going to touch it. And I still have a scar on my uh, left index finger um, proving uh, foolishness, right? But a muffler is a very important part of an engine. What about like, you know, weapons? Clearly, Jesus doesn't want his disciples to, to use swords. He's like, my kingdom is not of this world. In John 18, if it was, my soldiers would pick up swords uh, and be fighting to not hand me over, right? Well, a knife is kind of like a sword. In, uh, in Acts 10, Jesus gives Peter a vision of all of these clean and unclean animals all together, and he tells Peter to kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, I'm, I've never eaten anything unholy or clean. And Jesus is like, no, you need to go, 
you need to eat these things, right? So you got pig that he can eat now. How are you going to kill a pig? One of the main ways you're going to kill it is by slitting its throat. And so you're going to need a knife to do that. Need a knife for hunting these things. Use a knife for eating. Well, what about a gun? Should we not have guns at all? Well, I mean, there's a big temptation that comes with with having a gun. Just like if someone breaks into your house and you have a knife, there's a temptation there to use a knife, even like a steak knife to defend yourself. There's going to be that temptation there. And there'd be the temptation to use a gun as well. Now, I don't have guns. I've been offered them numerous times. But, you know... And, and part of the reason is because I don't want that temptation. But I'll tell you this, if I was living in an area where I needed to hunt um, for food, I would certainly have a gun. If I was living out in the country where there are rattlesnakes or coyotes, um, I would certainly have have a gun or two to, you know, shotgun, something like that. You know, if a rattlesnake comes up and it's, you know, I, I, I'm just going to shoot that rattlesnake. I'll tell you right out, right now. I mean... I'm, I'm going to shoot a coyote if it's trying to get one of my dogs, you know, like, but, but I'm not living in that kind of environment. And so I'm just not going to put a temptation in front of me to, um, to use that gun on somebody. Now, there's a story of, uh, this family called the Hostetlers. And, and this story is, uh, it's called the North Kill Amish Massacre. This is in 1757. So this is way back in the day, obviously, where people have to hunt to eat. And you got a bunch of predators, uh, you know, animal predators all around, mountain lions, bears, all that kind of stuff around your farm, you know, wolves, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, these Amish had guns. And there's this settlement in Berks County, Pennsylvania. And uh, basically what happens is this group of Native Americans come up on the house of the Hostetlers, and they start basically laying siege to the house. And the boys go and get their rifles. But the man, Jacob Hostetler, the man of the house, tells them they can use the rifles on the animals for hunting, but you can't use it on people. And you know what? The, the Native Americans killed all those men. They killed them. It was horrible, horrible. But it's a very clear witness from the Amish that, you know, like a knife can be used for eating, but not for killing people, you know. Gun can be used for hunting, but not for killing people. But should, I mean, should we just completely get rid of these things because there's the temptation for us to use them incorrectly? What about books? Yeah. We see in Acts chapter 19 that uh, there, in Ephesus, there were a lot of books on witchcraft, just occult books. And I mean, this was a major, major deal for the city. I mean, it's it's not just like... It's not goofing around. This is like legit how to manipulate evil spirits books. And um, the people all burn them. Well, clearly, books can be evil. 
I mean, straight up evil. So should we get rid of all books? Should we just not, because the temptation is there to read bad things or to write bad things, should we get rid of all books? What about the internet, YouTube? You know, YouTube is pretty filthy. And clearly YouTube, Google, you know, they don't like Christians, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. So should we completely get rid of the internet and YouTube and uh, social media? Should we not do any of that stuff at all? Maybe. I mean, maybe God gives you that conviction. And if he gives you that conviction, you got to live by that conviction. But it's interesting how many Christians, even um, nonviolent Christians who love these early Christian writings out, you know, we use YouTube, even though when people pull it up and do a search, a bunch of uh, very non-Christian things will come up as suggestions. Um, and there'll be a temptation there for people to, uh, to go down some really bad and sinful rabbit holes. And yet, we still use it. You know, Clement Alexandria's, his heart, I think, was definitely in the right place. We want to keep people away from sin. We don't want people to sin. We want to do whatever we can to prevent people from, you know, walking that temptation. But the problem is, kind of like the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, we as people have a fine way of putting aside the commandments of God in order to keep our traditions. We have a we have a way of not just majoring on the majors, but majoring on tradition. So what should we do? Well, I think the answer is easy to understand and really hard to practice. I think it's from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The word holy means basically to be set apart for God's special purpose. And what that looks like is Galatians 5 stuff, which is, since we live by the Spirit, let's walk with the Spirit. And we don't like to walk with the Spirit. We want law. We want rules, because it's hard to walk by faith. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so I want to encourage you today, major on the majors, all right? Don't let some errors in the early Christian writings dissuade you uh, from living out these essentials of the faith. And in the areas of ambiguity, if you have a conviction there, live according to your conviction. But if there's no real scriptural basis to impose that as a major rule, maybe that's not a hill we need to die on. Because there are a lot of hills being assaulted by our adversary 
that we do need to be willing to die for. God bless you. Spring turns in summer Soon things turn to gray In younger days it's creeping Now it flies away Memories are hazy The wounds they fester on Waiting game is lazy This charade is played too long And what if right now Slowly 